For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to, up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. Holy Father, we thank you for the love of Christ, rich and strong, that while we're yet sinners, that Christ Jesus died for us, that you were pleased, your word said, to crush him, that you treated him like a criminal, like a sinner, and yet you loved him, for you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. We bless you for such an expression for we who deserve nothing but wrath, but you've provided a way of escape. Now you've called us as those who've been bought with a price to live differently, to live holy, to live humbly, to live in a reverential fear before you. So we pray this morning as we open your word that you'd open our hearts to those truths and what all that means. Thank you that when you saved us, you saved us to change us, to make us instruments of grace the glory of Christ. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to indwell us, for taking our hearts of stone and making them soft and pliable, that, you're, that you bear witness to us that we've become children of God. So help us in your ministry today as teacher, as illuminator, that we might see the truth and apply it. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Right now, I am between books of the Bible. We finished the Revelation. We did a 10-week series on Elijah the prophet, and most recently, a three-week series on spiritual gifts. And last week, we started the subject of spiritual growth. You know, this is, in one sense, I suppose, a continuation of the subject of spiritual gifts, because to find your spiritual gift, you have to grow. It's like a newborn. You can hold them, but you don't know what their talents or skills or proclivities are until they begin to mature. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Some Christians have never really been able to identify specifically how God gifted them on the day of their conversion because they haven't grown much. And so we are to grow up in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, last week, we spoke on the subject of perpetual infancy from the fifth chapter. You can see this morning's topic is a warning against not growing. And by the way, as we come to this section of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 6, especially the first eight verses, it's some of the most controversial texts in all of the Bible. So pay close attention. I want to begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, 
and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God to put and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God, but it yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless. If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Underscore that in your thinking. And close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. When I went to seminary at the time, I considered it the best seminary in the nation that I could go to. And the reason is because it was the only seminary in the world that you worked through all 66 books of the Bible over the course of four years. You had in-depth theological training, but also training in the languages of Hebrew and Greek. And their goal was not only to allow you to read the best commentaries in most of those interact with the original language, but to equip you and to train you to actually be able to write a commentary. So when I studied this passage, in addition to my own study, I have 17 commentaries on the book of Hebrews. And virtually all of them are in agreement that this is probably the most difficult text in the book of Hebrews. In fact, one writer says of Hebrews 6, this passage is the naughtiest passage in Hebrews, if not the whole of the Bible. Another says the difficulty of interpretation cannot be exaggerated. Still another said, this is known to be one of the most difficult chapters in the whole canon of Scripture. Unless you think this is a recent challenge in hermeneutics, Dr. R.W. Dale, 150 years ago, wrote these words, I know how this passage has made the heart of many a good man tremble. It rises up in the New Testament with a gloomy grandeur, stern portentous, awful, sublime as Mount Sinai when the Lord descended upon it in fire. Some of these quotes express both the awe and the hesitancy with which commentators and expositors have when they approach this passage of Scripture. It's a difficult passage to understand, but it's not impossible. God gave us His Word so we could understand it. But we have to apply ourselves. But I will say as you study it, you will find it sobering, it's frightening, it's almost terrifying, and your index level of the fear of God should be raised today unless you just have a hard, obstinate heart. Hebrews 6, sadly, has been a cause of worry and concern for some who have misunderstood and misapplied this text of Scripture. Some have questioned whether or not they are really eternally secure in the faith, They've read this text and wondered, is it possible once you're saved to lose that salvation? Still others have concluded that they have lost their salvation and they could never be restored, that they've committed some unpardonable sin and could never be saved again. Now, while I would never want to give a false assurance to someone who professed Christ but didn't really know Him, neither would I want them to stumble and miss God's best in terms of assurance and the security that He wants us to know. But when you let all the air out of the balloon, basically there are three major positions on Hebrews, the sixth chapter. First, there are these who say that this represents someone who is saved and lost their salvation. The position that they take, though, is not consistent with not only the book of Hebrews itself, but the rest of the New Testament. 
A good principle of interpreting the scripture, we call it hermeneutics, is you interpret what's unclear in light of what is very clear. And if you believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the whole of scripture, which he did, then he inspired it without a single error, and there'll be no mistakes, errors, or contradictions. And therefore, any interpretation that goes against a clear text of scripture should be considered as less than faithful. So you, inter you interpret what is obscure in light of what is very, very obvious. And it's obvious in light of many, many passages that once you're saved, you are saved forever. And some of you have been with us in our Wednesday night series on basic discipleship, and we spent four weeks on the subject of assurance of salvation and eternal security. And we learned that there are over 150 passages in the New Testament that affirm we are secure. There's uh, about six, seven, eight, some that are repeated twice, that at first glance seem to appear that you could lose your salvation. And this is one of the most popular that people would appeal to. But we know it doesn't mean that. Let's give the writer of the Hebrews credit and that he is not contradicting himself. For instance, in Hebrews 7, if you turn over a page, in verse 23, and the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he, the Lord Jesus, is able, underscore, to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Likewise, in Hebrews 10 and verse 14, for by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Or Hebrews 13 and verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So even within the book of Hebrews, it affirms the doctrine of eternal security that once you are saved, you are saved forever. But for those who teach that this passage says that you can lose your salvation, they're not consistent because many people who teach that, they say, well, but you can get saved again. You can be born and unborn, saved and lost, saved and lost. But this passage actually says more than they want it to say. Let me read verse 4 and verse 6 without the intervening clauses. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So in other words, if this verse is referring to a saved person who defected from the faith, the text says they cannot be restored. His loss forever. If we believe once saved, always saved, then they ought to believe once lost, always lost. And I've met a few people who actually teach that position. There's a second position that's often held in reference to this text, and that he's not addressing saved people, but lost people. Lost people who came to the edge of salvation, but never stepped into the kingdom. People who may have even made a profession of faith, but never really a possession of Christ himself. And it's argued that they came under the convicting work of the Spirit of God, but ultimately because they did not respond, they ended up rejecting Christ and they lost their opportunity for all time. Now, there are some passages that affirm that, that a person, and it's only known to God, can reach a point because they have repeatedly, habitually said no to the Spirit of God, 
Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the seed is snatched, that the, the, the devil snatches the seed that they may not believe and be saved. And of course, in a wholesale broad way, that's going to happen during the tribulation. God will send a deluding influence and people will believe a lie. Why? Because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. God alone knows who those people are. But I don't believe, and let me just say parenthetically in reference to that interpretation, I can appreciate it because they're trying to be biblically consistent. Since they affirm what God clearly says, eternal security, they therefore don't want to conclude that this is someone who is saved and was lost. So at least they're being consistent. The third position that is held by many great expositors is that this is a warning to people who are eternally secure, who've met Christ in salvation, but it's a very severe warning. We'll talk about what that warning is, that they're in grave danger of reaching a point where they cannot come back. Now, don't forget the chapter in verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost 1,200 years after the Bible was completed. They're not inspired from God. Some have suggested they were added. God allowed it to happen to keep preachers like me from preaching too long. But while they are helpful, let me say they can be distracting. And if you start in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, and you miss the immediate context, then you'll misinterpret the passage. So if you're using your note-taking outline, you can see I've organized this section under three headings. And just by way of review, we want to start with the problem of not growing. We looked at that last week. And I want to refresh your mind and dust off your thinking in this realm, because if you miss what 5, 11 through 14 are teaching, you're going to miss chapter 6 altogether. So look at chapter 5 and verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, need milk and not solid food. Now, of course, when you read verse 11 concerning him, the careful thinker and reader will say concerning whom. And of course, if you've read chapter 5, then you know the him is in reference to this guy Melchizedek. He's just been mentioned in verse 6 and then again in verse 10. And if you go back and you read the first 10 verses of chapter 5, you will discover that he is referring to the Lord Jesus and the Melchizedekian priesthood. According to 5.11, the writer anticipated that it would be hard for him to explain these truths to the readers because they were slow to learn. And they were slow to learn because they had become dull of hearing. By this time, they should have been Christians long enough where he could teach them these truths such that they themselves could even be teachers. There should have been some people in the church, new in the faith, that could have even profited from their ministry, these older believers to new believers, but they weren't there. By this time, you ought to be able to learn algebra and trigonometry and calculus, but I got to teach you your numbers and I've got to teach you the multiplication tables all over again. By the way, this is, again, an incredibly practical portion of Scripture for the American church. And what's so unfortunate today is we have Christians in America who've been saved 20, 30, 40 years or more. We have congregations of gray-headed babies. P. 
people who ought to be wrapping their teeth around a good T-bone, but they're still on baby food and padlum, and they're sucking a bottle. So to help us to see if we're overgrown babies, he gives us four tests. The first of four tests is what I call the decibel test. They had failed the decibel test. Again, here in verse 11, concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. It's hard. It's hard for you to pay attention. In fact, I've been preaching just long enough where some of you are beginning to drift. (laughs) You're really not listening. You're smiling. You're waving your head. The lights are on, but nobody's inside. And there's a lot of people like that. They're clock watchers. They say, gee whiz, I'm used to a 12 and a half minute sermon, and this preacher's not even out of the introduction barely. And the same attitude can be expressed in many other realms, in an adult Bible fellowship, in a Bible study. And a, a mark and a sign, though, that you're growing up is you're spiritually hungry. But people who don't have an ear to hear, their ears are plugged, they've not passed the decibel tests, are in trouble. So beyond the decibel test, there's also they had failed in the dependency test. They had failed the dependency test. A spiritually stunted believer is not only someone who is dull in his ability to hear spiritual truth, but he's dependent totally on others. Again, look at verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. The elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. He's talking about Christians who need a spiritual nursemaid, Christians who constantly need someone to hold the bottle for them, and they haven't matured enough where they can give out even a little to other people. So I would ask you again, as I asked last week, is there someone now that you're teaching, someone now that you're able to help? Certainly, if you're a dad and mom and you have children in a home, that's the starting place. But even beyond that, in the church, in the body of believers, maybe someone that you've introduced to Christ. And some of us, sadly, if we depended on you to grow the church and to fulfill the Great Commission, to win people to Jesus and help them to grow, we would be stale and dead. That's why 75% of the churches in America are on the decline. 10,000 churches, according to the Wall Street Journal, will close in the next five years. Churches all across America are dying. And sometimes churches that have the gospel, gray-headed babies who can't help the first person. They passed, they failed the decibel test, they failed the dependency test, but notice they also failed the diet test. They failed the diet test. So he speaks here about milk. He says, you've become dull of hearing, and the most they can get out of a sermon really is milk. During the week, they don't really interact with the Scriptures on their own. They come here on Sunday, and they hear a sermon, and it's like drinking a glass of milk, and the usher has to burp them on the way out. (laughs) Listen, if the only time you study the Bible is on Sunday mornings, you're weak. And you don't need to be there, and you don't want to be there, and I don't want you to be there as your pastor. You need to begin to learn. You need to begin to feed yourself. And so here's this preacher, and he says, I've got much to say. I mean, there's so many truths I want to tell you, but he says, you've come to need milk. Did you see that? You've come to need milk. An infant does not come to need milk. He's born with the need to want to suck. But they had come to need milk because they had regressed into a second childhood. 
There are many people like that today. They're dull of hearing. We saw the word meant no push. It's used of the sluggard in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. No drive, no hunger. They, they've spoiled their spiritual appetite, and they've gone into a second childhood. Now, when he comes to verse 14, he applies another test beyond the dullness test and the dependency test and the diet test. They had failed the discernment test. They had failed the discernment test. Look at verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So they lack discernment because they lacked obedience. Children lack discernment. They'll put almost anything into their mouth. We were waiting several hours for a flight decades ago in an airport, and we had just one little one at the time, Jeremy, and he was about a year old, and he was crawling around on the floor, and we're watching. The next thing we know, he grabs a dead roach, and he's ready to put it in his mouth. (laughs) See, that's what little babies will do. They'll put almost anything into their mouths, and that's what spiritual babies do. They can't discern good and evil. Now, let me just say this. Parents, you can't really help your children if you're not helping yourself. And unless you have discernment with your children, and I would say the same is true with grandparents. Oh, they want to watch such and such. Have you thought that through? Do you know that there's a whole philosophy and a message, say, behind that particular movie? Oh, just let them, they, 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 you know, they'll be happy. And some of us, because we haven't grown, we haven't spiritually exercised, we can't discern good from evil. And it's very sad. And so you have these Christians, and they, they watch these folks online, and they don't even know that they're heretics. But they, you know, they have a few verses that they baptize here and there, so it sounds good. And they listen to these teachers who are getting direct revelation from God, and they think, well, they must be super spiritual. God doesn't speak to me in that way where, you know, thus saith the Lord, and this is what I want you to do. No, that, that's, that's dangerous. That's far beyond what God has taught in Scripture. That is gross error. Those are typically false teachers or inflated believers. So we need discernment. We live in the last of the last days. I'm convinced of it. And there's a tsunami of evil that is sweeping our nation. And this culture wants to feed our children poison. And we need to know the difference. And so these Hebrew believers lacked discernment, not because they lacked information, but because they lacked obedience. You see that word trained? It's the word gymnazo. We get our word gymnasium from it. They were not gymnasticizing their senses to discern good and evil. Now, I took the time to go over that because the context here is very, very important to understanding Hebrews chapter 6. They had come to need milk. Why? Because they were not obeying what they know, and they lost their ability to discern. Now, that's the problem of not growing. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 6, let's think together about the solution to growing, the solution to not growing. What is the solution to not growing? So God doesn't leave them hanging here. He provides the solution to their problem, and He exhorts them on three levels and by application, all of us. First, to grow, we must be willing to pursue maturity. We must be willing to pursue maturity. Now, you will notice the very first word of chapter 6 is the word therefore. 
So you know right off this is connected to what has previously been said. You always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And contextually, it goes back to what we just studied in chapter 5. Who is he addressing in chapter 5? The lost or the saved? He's writing to saved people, and that's important. And so look carefully at his counsel here in verse 1. There are three phases that you want to think about. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So he first urges them to leave the elementary principles and to press on to maturity. You see that word maturity? It's, it's the Greek word teleos. It means full grown. It means mature. And it was an excellent translation in the 17th century when the King James rendered it perfection because it had a different nuance in that day. But he is not saying that anyone in this life can be sinlessly perfect. That will not happen until you are in your glorified body and God has completed your salvation. But nonetheless, he is speaking about a believer growing up and changing. And you will notice that the writer of the Hebrews includes himself in that, let us. So unless you think that this book is being written by an unbeliever, then you might conclude that he's reading, he's, he's addressing unbelievers, but he's not. Let us, himself included. He's addressing his brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me remind you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are not growing, you're backsliding. God doesn't make you like a fence post stuck in the ground. He's made you like a tree that is planted, that is to grow and develop and to flourish. And if you're not growing, you're, 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 you're dying. You can't just stay neutral. And so he says, let us go on to maturity. And it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option for the obedient Christian. And, and it has a sense, the tense that's used, continue, keep on going and progressing into maturity. Now, notice the second phrase here in verse 1, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So again, who the let us is, I just mentioned it, is critical to interpreting the entire section of Scripture. The us is not referring to the unsaved, but to those who are saved. He's, he's addressing Christians to press on. And so I mentioned that some take this as a warning to the lost. Well, number one, the lost aren't going to be pouring over Hebrews chapter 6. He's writing to believers, and it's a very serious warning. And again, to come to another conclusion is really to ignore the context, not to mention the 13 let us exhortations found in Hebrews. That would be a great study in and of itself this week. Let us together, both individually and corporately, press on to maturity. When our children were little babies, we did everything for them. But as they began to grow, they began to help us out. That's the way God designed the family. And they'd help, you know, feed the one that was younger than they. And when you begin to grow up, you begin to help other members of the family. And you should care about that. Why? Because we're members one of another, Paul will say. And a mark that you are maturing is that you're beginning to help other people. And if we're ever to grow up, we have to pursue maturity. But there's a third phrase here, again in verse 1, therefore leaving the elementary teaching. 
The elementary teaching, we saw last time that that was a phrase that was actually used in language construction, what we might call the letters of the alphabet. Leave the ABCs and move on about the Messiah. Let us press on to maturity, not laying a foundation again. So to have reviewed the fundamentals of the faith all over again would have just left them right where they were, babies. He wants to give them new information, but they can't really receive it in one sense. They need to press on. How do they press on? They obey what they know. You apply what God shows you. So he doesn't want them to keep spinning their wheels. He wants us to move on. And let me just say parenthetically here, it's possible that you are a brand new Christian and you're listening today, but you are not unhealthy. You are a healthy believer because you're new. You have new life. You have a new direction. You have new aspirations to follow after the things of God because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But you're not mature because you haven't had enough time. It takes time to grow. You need food, you need exercise, and you need time. Those are the three biblical components in the New Testament for maturity. Uh, We've got children over in the fellowship hall, and to our covert listeners online, I know our nurseries are not open, but we have an old 800-seat auditorium over there, and it's all spaced out, and it's a little more relaxed if you're a little uptight about your child making noise, and you can participate with us. But those children over there are healthy, but they're children. And I should say parenthetically while we're on it, there are churches all across America who are convincing us as parents that they are doing us a favor and that they offer children's church and then junior church, middle school church, high school church, where the children don't worship with their parents. That is an unbiblical position to hold into practice. If they are old enough to hear and understand Paul's explanation in Ephesians 6 where he addresses the fathers, and then he says, children, obey your parents, for this is right. It's the first commandment with a promise. If they are old enough to soak that in, then they're old enough to be in the worship service. Now, you can try to train them when they're 12 or 13, and in this day, you will probably have lost them. Or you can start when they're five years old, and if they are old enough to memorize their name, address, and phone number, typically they are old enough to be in the worship service. But with that parenthetically said, it's possible for you to be a brand new Christian, but you're healthy, and we have people like that. And God typically in any given year entrusts a few hundred new believers to us that we are to nurture and help and care. But it takes time to grow. For by this time, you ought to have been teachers, but you have need for someone to teach you. But then there are people who come week after week after week, and they gorge themselves on Scripture, and they're no more mature than they were a year ago, and that's not good. So he starts with this positive advice, this positive instruction to pursue maturity, but then he gives some negative counsel. To grow, you must be willing to forsake immaturity. You must be willing to forsake immaturity. Now, let's read about this foundation that they were not to lay all over again. At the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, with the insertion of this little word, not, the writer gives us six Old Testament practices that were to be left behind by these Jewish Christians so they could press on to maturity. 
Sixth truth that may be a little foreign to you and I, but these people are from the Jewish faith. These are Hebrews. These are, you, you don't ever give up your Jewishness when you become a follower of Jesus, of Yeshua. You're still a Jew. And so these were Jewish Christians who had come out of that faith, and that doesn't surprise us because the Scripture says salvation is from the Jews. And so some of these as you read the whole letter, had gone back and practiced some of the externals of Judaism. You know, we often quote that verse, not to forsake our assembling together. You know why they were forsaking their assembling together? Because to gather with other born-again Jews meant persecution, meant to have your business forsaken by your other Jewish customers. It meant to sometimes experience physical persecution. We talk about today, well, why didn't we show up? I felt like sleeping in. No, the reason they were forsaking their assembling was because of persecution. And some of them, wanting to appear more Jewish, went back to some of the external Jewish practices to kind of tone the persecution down. Follow along in your Bibles. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and re the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, notice on this list, first he mentions repentance from dead works. He's referring to the works of the Mosaic law. Those works, all that sacrificial system and all the various offerings that they made were just symbols. They were symbols of the substance. There were shadows of Christ. And so through the preaching of the gospel, when they heard the plan of salvation, they realized those things could never save them. These were just baby things. Then he mentions repentance from faith and faith toward God. They made a response to the preaching of the gospel. They exercised faith in what God had promised concerning the Messiah. So again, to go back to the temple worship was to go back to a foundational issue that they needed to move past. Notice, in addition, instructions about washings. Uh, the King James uniquely writes, doctrines of baptisms. And that might be a little confusing, though it's technically right. It's the word baptizo, but it's in the plural. It's not baptism, but baptisms. And so most English translations render it washings. And really, that's what's in view in light of the rest of Scripture. He's not talking about believer's baptism, credo baptism. He's talking about washings of the Old Testament, ceremonial washings. And they were required. You had to wash your clothes a certain way. You had to wash your utensils a certain way. You had to wash your hands a certain way. A woman after childbirth, after a menstrual cycle, and all these different things. For men as well, you had to be cleansed. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and you know that this is the main entrance into the temple. There were a number of entrances you could approach the Temple Mount where you worship God, but these are the southern steps. This is the main entrance, and I think you can see it in this picture. There are different size steps. You're looking at some of the original steps, and some are just so wide, and some are 15 inches wide. And part of that is as you walked up and you came to a big step, it caused you to pause. And most Jews read the songs or the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134. And that would be a great exercise for you this afternoon just to read even the first verse 
of Psalm 120 to 134, and you could see how a Jew is preparing himself to go meet God in the temple and to worship him. But before they walked up the steps, they came to these things called mikvahs. It's like a big baptismal tub. Here's another one. And here's even another one. And these are all right at the base of the southern steps. They have found 48 of them, and they're still finding them. So Pentecost took place in the southern steps. They came out of the upper room, and they poured out onto the southern steps, and Peter preached the gospel. And all these people, 3,000 were saved, and, and the infant baptizers say, well, how could they have baptized anyone by immersion? There's no river in Jerusalem. These mikvahs. They say that there's over 100 original for certain. And so they baptize over 3,000 people. It would be more like this up here that we baptize in most Sundays when God gives us new believers or people who've never had believers' baptism. And what did that washing do? It shattered your need for cleansing, that you're a sinner and you just can't flippantly come into the presence of God. You need cleansing. And of course, that's a baby thing. That's a symbol. We now, as believers in Jesus, have been given a robe of righteousness. We have been declared with the righteousness of Christ, and so he calls us saints by calling. He goes on, and he uh, speaks of the laying on of hands. And again, that was a ritual when a man brought an offering to God, and he would lay his hands on the animal's head to signify that his sin, so to speak, needed to be passed to his substitute. But Jesus accomplished that. Then fifth, he mentions the resurrection of the dead, and sixth, eternal judgment, both taught in the Old Testament Scriptures, some of the earliest teachings a believer would hear when the gospel was preached, but the fact that Messiah would rise from the dead, that his body would not undergo decay, that every child of God would someday rise from the dead, and that there would be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, as Daniel affirms in other passages, that's Old Testament. They should have known that. He wanted them to go further and deeper in their faith. And so they needed to move on from the picture to the reality, from the shadow and into the substance. And because Christianity did grow out of Judaism, it was a subtle way in which you could avoid persecution. But these were the elementary principles. They were still stuck in the vestibule of Judaism, and they needed to progress now, he's not talking about people like in the parable of the sower, where Jesus speaks of the man on rocky soil. He, he receives the word with joy. He believes for a while, not in, but just here, not here, in the mind, not in the heart, and then he falls away. He's not talking about that kind of person. These are not people who out and out rejected Jesus. These are people who pulled back in their growth, and we have people like that today. They begin to grow they get excited about the Lord, and then they begin to get some kickback. You mean you think homosexuality is a sin? You think transgenderism is not true? What's your problem? And of course, they've convinced the American public that this is not a moral issue, but a minority status issue. That's exactly what those two men from Harvard in the 1980s, that was their goal, and they achieved it. I preached a sermon 15 years ago on those two guys, and now we've seen they have achieved it. And you kick back against that? Whoa, what's your problem? What do you mean you don't want to go out and get wasted with us, Marine? We're all going out to drink. Come on with us. 
You mean you don't want to go out? I mean, we're deployed. We're thousands of miles away. We can cheat on our wives. That's the culture, not just for deployed people, but for people who live here. And you speak against that? I see Christians liking on Facebook people who are living in sin and having illegitimate children. Look, I love the baby, but we don't like things that God calls evil. Think, where's your head? What are you thinking? And so to be safe, we just be quiet. We seal the lips. We don't want our family and friends to be bothered by us. So there's the problem, there's the solution, now there's the warning. The warning for not growing. Verse 3 is a rather sobering verse. Here the writer says, and this we will do if God permits. What does he mean, this we will do? What exactly is the this? It goes back to the nearest antecedent in verse 1, to the pressing on of maturity. We shall press on to maturity if God permits. That's our goal, if God permits. Verse 3 is really the key to understanding what follows. But what's interesting, sadly, in a lot of the commentaries, they just skip verse 3, and yet it's critical. And if, by the way, means if here. It's a conditional thing. If God permits, why in the world would you say that God would not permit us to go on to maturity? Isn't that what God wants for us? Yes, it is. But there are times when God will not permit it. We will press on to maturity if God permits it, because maybe He will and maybe He won't, and we'll see why in just a moment. So the answer to this warning really comes in three dimensions. First, the warning involves a full enlightenment. The warning involves a full enlightenment. Again, I don't believe for a moment that the writer is talking to the lost about salvation, but he's speaking to the saved about maturity. And he uses here five descriptions that help us to understand that these are saved people. Now, pay close attention because we're entering into the hardest section. So let me first give kind of an overview, and then we'll go back and we'll look at the finer points. So starting here in verse 4, we have a case in point when God will not allow someone to move on to maturity. Notice, by the way, you need to be able to explain this passage of Scripture. If you get involved in helping people, it's not a matter of if, it's when are they going to ask you this question about Hebrews 6. But apart from that, we all need this for ourselves because this is a severe, sobering warning. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. See, God doesn't permit it in this case. Why And why not? Since, here's the reason, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So to help us to understand what this person is like, he gives a positive and then a negative illustration. First, a positive illustration. It's found here in verse 7, and he describes uh, the life that is able to press on to maturity. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives the bless- a blessing from God. And then in verse 8, he describes by illustration a life that is not permitted to press on to maturity. 
But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, that's the flow. So let's look at the details. First in verse 4. From the case of those who have once been enlightened. You see that word enlightened? It's, I put the Greek in each case. You don't have to read it, but you can see it's the same word. Photizo. And it's used by the writer of the Hebrews and other places in the New Testament of someone who's born again. And so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul uses the word. I read this in the pastoral prayer this morning. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He's addressing saved people, the church at Ephesus, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The unsaved people of this world are spoken of as being in darkness, but the saved as those who are enlightened and can be continued to be illuminated as they grow. The lost, they're blinded by the God of this world, but the saved who have been regenerated, they are able to spiritually appraise all things. And by the way, the writer to the Hebrews, he's consistent. He uses in Hebrews 10.32 this same word of a believer. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. So for those who say that this passage refers to an unbeliever, that the enlightened are people who have, you know, had an experience with the Spirit of God but not been converted, they've not done their homework. Because in every single instance in the rest of the New Testament, which virtually none of them debate, when the word enlightened is used, it is used in reference to believer. There's a second characteristic here in verse 4, from the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. So in calling them people who have tasted of the heavenly gift, some say, well, this applies to an unbeliever. It can't. Again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Peter uses the same word to describe a believer. He said in 1 Peter 2, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk. Here, milk is not being used like the writer of the Hebrews in deference to meat, but about the purity, about the absolute unadulterated truth of Scripture. Like a newborn baby, we are to crave pure spiritual milk, we might say the Bible, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. See the word tasted? It's the same word we just read, tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, again, there are some people who say, well, he's addressing lost people. And they argue, well, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They just haven't eaten of it. They've had a sample, but not a full meal. But again, they've not carefully done their homework because the writer of the Hebrews himself uses this same word. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, he's describing the Lord Jesus. Listen, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste, same word, death for everyone, Giamai. Jesus didn't sample death. He tasted it in full. These Hebrew Christians had tasted of the heavenly gift. These were converted people. Look at the third characteristic in verse 4. Pay attention. If you're bored, it tells me 
you are a weak baby Christian and ask God to help you. Please ask him to help you. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers, partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Now, those who say that, again, this passage refers to the unsaved and it's a warning to them, they say, well, they've been partakers in in the sense that they've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They've seen the truth of the gospel, but they haven't been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No, the word is used of someone who has a full participation in something. For instance, again, by the writer of the Hebrews, and I could illustrate it in many other passages, but why not illustrate it by the writer himself because he's going to be consistent? He uses it to describe the incarnation of Christ. He says in Hebrews 2.14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook. Same word, just in verbal form. He partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The Lord Jesus had a real and full sharing in our humanity. He wasn't part man. He was truly man, truly God, fully man, fully God. And so he's describing a full participation. Notice the fourth characteristic, and have tasted the good word of God. Here again, the word taste, same word in word in verse 4. It speaks of a full experience, not a sampling. Only a believer can fully appreciate the wonder and the goodness of the word of God. An unbeliever is repelled by it, but a believer sees it as the good and perfect will of God for his life. Then the final description, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Remember, these were believers who lived in the first century. There were witnesses of the foundational miracles that took place that will be reduplicated in the millennial age to come. They would have seen the miracle of tongues and interpretation of tongues and healings and miracles as the church was established. God still does healing and miracles, but not the way he did it in the first century. Don't let these frauds and fakes on TV convince you otherwise. God has never consistently throughout biblical history done miracles. Adam never did a miracle. Enoch, the first prophet, never did a miracle. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they never did miracles. The first miracles were done by Moses. And then for a short time through Joshua as they went into the promised land. Hundreds and hundreds of years went by again. No one did miracles. Until as we studied recently, Elijah the prophet and Elisha the prophet came on the scene. All those great prophets, Jeremiah... Ezekiel, Isaiah, none of those men did miracles. Now, some of them witnessed miracles. Daniel witnessed some miracles. He didn't do a miracle. Hundreds of years went by again, and God does miracles in another cluster through Christ and his apostles. And once the canon of Scripture was finished, and the message and the messenger was authenticated, a couple thousand years have gone by, and no one has done miracles the way they did in the first century. Don't let these lying frauds convince you otherwise. Someone told me they were mad at me for preaching against Jimmy Swaggart. He's a lying fraud. He doesn't have the truth of the gospel. He may get you to cry, but he doesn't have the truth. All these fakes and frauds. But you see, people today have no discernment because they're baby Christians. It's very, very sad. But there's coming another cluster of miracles with the two witnesses 
And God will do the miraculous again as we studied in the Revelation. So here are these people. They had, they had seen these foundational truths, but now they needed to move on. So he gives also the warning. This, the warning involves a fearful impossibility. Now, tighten your pew belt because we're going to hit some turbulence here in verse 6. It's probably the hardest verse in the whole section. And then, having experienced all these things, and then, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Question, what does it mean to fall away? Well, I've already told you one position is someone who is born again and lost their salvation. And some will be consistent and they'll say that that person who lost their salvation is under an eternal curse and will only meet the fires of hell. But most Arminians, those who teach you can lose your salvation, don't teach that. They don't teach once lost, always lost. But that's what the text says. It is impossible. It doesn't say hard. It is impossible to renew them to repentance. And so these verses become a death knell to the Arminian position. They cannot refer to someone who came to salvation and then rejected and is lost forever, neither for that matter. Can it refer because there are, again, brothers in Christ, and I love them, who say that this is a passage that is written to lost people as a warning. Well, it is true that there are what the Scripture calls an apostate, someone who walks to the edge of the kingdom. They understand the plan of salvation, but they've never met the man of salvation. And Jesus said in the final judgment, there'll be many like that, not a few, but many who are on the broad road who made all kinds of claims in the name of Christ. They did miracles. They cast out demons. They preached but I never knew you, not I once knew you, I never knew you. But an apostate is someone who walks to the edge, and every college president who runs a Christian school, every seminary president, every church leader needs to be careful because there are people who enter into the church who draw it away from its truth. That's what the whole book of Jude is about. They come in unnoticed, they look Christian, they talk Christian, but they're not. And they eventually apostatize, and we are seeing one pastor, one leader, one music group after another, even in the last 24 months, who have departed from historic Christianity. How sad it is. But God said these things would happen at the ends of time, that men would apostatize, they would fall away from the faith. That's the word apostasia. That's not the word used here for fall away. It's the word pimto. In fact, on one occasion... It's applied to the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, where he fell on his face and he prayed. There, there are actually many examples in the Bible of people who fell away but weren't lost. Peter fell that night and he suffered loss, but he was not lost. John Mark, he went south on the, after the first missionary journey, but he was not lost. You can fall away without, quote-unquote, losing your salvation. And if you read the entire letter, these people were not in danger of saying, we hate Christ, we reject Him, we made a mistake. Not at all. No, their problem was a warning of not standing up strong for Christ. In fact, why don't you turn back to Hebrews 2. There's no slide here, so you might want to go to Hebrews 2 for just a second. Hebrews, the second chapter. 
And again, Hebrews chapter 2 is kind of an interesting, it's one of the five, some count six warning passages in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, notice how the chapter opens. For this reason, in light of the greatness of Christ that he's just described in chapter 1, who is to be worshipped because he's not an angel, he's God Almighty, greater than the angels, that the angels worship him. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. That's the problem, drifting. Are you a drifter? See, you can come here week after week... And you can be drifting on the inside, where your heart isn't getting warmer and more passionate for Christ and for lost people, but colder. They weren't paying attention to what had been preached to them. They were drifting. So he asked the question in verse 3. Look at it. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Please underscore what it does not say, because this passage has often been mispreached. He does not say, how shall we escape if we reject so great a salvation? But how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that was their problem. They should have been maturing, but they were neglecting the great salvation. So to stir them up, look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 in verse uh, 12. I want you to notice he gives an illustration from the Old Testament when God delivered the Jewish people out of Egypt. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you, he's talking to brethren, born-again people, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away, same word, from the living God. Then look at verse 16 of chapter 3. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Yes, they provoked God. And with whom was he God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes, it was. And to whom did he swear they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, these verses, he's dipping back into the Old Testament where God, by his mighty, omnipotent arm with blood, brought them out of Egypt. He did all these magnificent miracles. He split the uh, Red Sea in two. He provided supernatural food and supernatural water. And a trip that should have taken 11 days took 40 years. They lost their way, not because they lost their map, but because they lost perspective. They had become dull in their hearing. And so remember what God said in Numbers chapter 13. Here's the command God gave to Moses. Listen to it. And this is the text, by the way, that he's referencing. If you've studied Hebrews 3 and 4, send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. And so if you remember, they come to the edge of the promised land, they're at Kadesh Barnea, and God sends, uh, through his instruction, 12 spies into the land. Not to see if they could take it, God promised the land. But here's a beautiful picture between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So they were to go in and spy out the land. And when the 12 spies came back, the people with their dull ears believed the majority report instead of believing the promises of God. Two of the 12 spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, with a different kind of report. 
They said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the other 10 spies, the majority, Moses records of them, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. They are too strong for us. They're like giants. We're like grasshoppers. Their cities are well fortified. It's impossible we can't do it. Now, notice how the people responded. It's recorded in Numbers 14. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And in the words of Hebrews chapter 4, having just cited this example, he says, the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They could not press on. God said, they will not enter my rest. Now, it didn't mean that in the sense, this sense they fell away, that they died and went to hell. No, they were redeemed with precious blood of a lamb, prefiguring what the Messiah would do. And if you read the Exodus carefully, you will discover that the saints in Moses' day had the exact same five advantages that these Hebrew Christians had in the first century. They too had once been enlightened. They understood the meaning of the gospel as found in the Passover, that redemption comes through blood. They too had tasted of the heavenly gift as they ate the manna. They too had become partakers of the Holy Spirit as seen in the water that came out of the rock. They too had tasted the good word of God when Moses stood up and preached the word of God. And they saw the powers of the age to come as God did the miraculous through Moses. But in spite of all these privileges, they didn't press on into the promised land. They missed God's best because of their dullness of hearing, because the Word of God was not mixed with faith. Now remember, they were redeemed people. They were a pardoned people. Moses, when he's concerned for the state of the people, God said to Moses in Numbers 14 and verse 20, I have pardoned them according to your word. God forgave them, but they suffered the consequences for 40 years. The next day when Moses said, God's not going to let you go up, what did they want to do? We're sorry, Moses. Tell God we were wrong. We repent. And with tears, they attempt to go into the promised land, and they are slaughtered. They missed God's window because of a decision they made. Now, let me bring it back here to Hebrews 6. These Hebrew Jewish Christians were at a Kadesh Barnea of sorts. They were going to have to make a decision to go on to maturity or they wouldn't be able to go on to maturity. You see, repentance allows the believer to come back to the place of God's blessing. You can't repent on your terms. You repent on God's terms. And don't think that you can flirt and flirt and flirt with sin, and when you get around to it, that you're going to make everything right. It doesn't work that way. And because of their disobedience, because of their callousness of heart, 
God said potentially they again crucified themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. Remember, these are Hebrew believers who didn't want to go back, uh, to go forward and, and be persecuted by their fellow Jews. And so every time they brought an animal or some sacrifice or they jumped through one of the mosaic hoops, they were basically saying what Jesus did was meaningless and insufficient. The day before the crucifixion, it would have been totally acceptable. But the day after, it was totally meaningless because the reality of the shadows had been fulfilled. What they were doing was not some small thing. It was a wicked thing. The same happens today to believers with family and friends. They refuse to go on. They don't like the pressure. They don't like the kickback by parents or grandparents or a spouse or people at work. And so they're just kind of silent Christians. And they don't go on. They don't want to get too radical for Jesus. And you can reach a point where it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Like Israel of old, they were shelved. And I meet Christians who are shelved, and they just seem at some point to lose all their desire to get things right, to put first things first. Notice also this warning involves a final evaluation. This warning involves a final evaluation. You see, to those who say that this is a passage exhorting the lost to get saved, there's an assumption that the word repentance here in this context is in reference to salvation, but it's not. It's in reference to sanctification. The phrase renewed to repentance tells me they had already repented once. And sometimes God asks saved people to repent. We studied it in the seven churches in the Revelation that Jesus wrote a letter to. And so verses 7 and 8 are not talking about the root of salvation. It's speaking of the fruit of salvation. He's not speaking of salvation, but as verse 10 will point out, about the things that accompany salvation. For ground that drinks, the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. He's describing the, the fruit of someone who's pressing on to maturity. By contrast, verse 8, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned, not in the fires of hell, but the fire of judgment. There's a judgment. It's the judgment of, 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 the, of the just. It's the judgment seat of Christ where every man's work will be tested by fire, be it wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, and every man's work will become evident, Paul says, because the fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. If his work remains, he'll receive a reward. If his work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. Please notice it three times in verse 8, the word it. It yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. He's referring back to the vegetation here in verse 7. The life doesn't end up being burned, but the service does. And at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be great sadness. Now, let me try to apply this as we close our time off. Number one, a life not counting for Christ produces worthless fruit. A life stops that stops counting for Christ moves into the realm of shipwreck. 
and they produce worthless fruit. A believer who cannot be renewed to repentance in the words of the Apostle Paul, where he gives an example of two men in 1 Timothy are shipwrecked in the faith. We have Christians who say they love God, but they don't really revere God because we live in a day of soft grace where many think they can live consequence-free lives because they've been saved. And sadly, in the American evangelical church, we've lost our fear of God. And I've met Christians over the decades. I just can't seem to help them. As best I know, they're saved, but I just can't seem to help them. And they've gotten to the point where it's impossible to renew them to repentance. God put them up on a shelf. You think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get right with God when I get around to it. That is a distorted view of a holy, righteous God and the way that he deals with his people. And I would urge you today that if in your heart there's still an urge to get right and you know you've drifted and your heart is far away, get it right before the day is over, before this meeting is over. Because there can come a time where it will be too late. Let me say, if you are not a Christian, what we're speaking about this morning is not neglecting salvation few, but rejecting salvation. And I assume that if you're here or you're listening to this broadcast somewhere in the world, your heart is open. But if you don't know that heaven is your home, that if you died in the next 60 seconds, you would be walking on streets of gold, you need to settle that issue because the Spirit of God will not always strive with you. He deals consistently, both with believers and unbelievers. You say, well, pastor, I've got some problems in my life, and I'm going to get them all straightened out. When I get them all straightened out, I'll become a Christian. If you reason that way, you'll never become a Christian. Because you can't straighten out all your problems. The one who sins becomes a slave of sin. You say, well, when I get around to it, no, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And if you have an openness of heart today, you didn't manufacture that on your own. God put it there. But you as a free moral agent can say no. But you can reach a point where that no will become an eternal no. And you will remember this sermon a hundred billion years from today in hell. Now, Father... We know you've given us this passage for those of us who've met you, that we can't flippantly do what we want to do, that like Isaiah of old, when he had a picture of what you're like, all he could say was, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And we thank you that in every respect, you are a faithful God, faithful even to your righteousness in the way that you discipline your people. So I pray today for some dear brother or sister in Christ who's been adrift, help them to realize that you and your divine discipline can at some point let them go where they are shelved in a castaway believer. Help them to realize the seriousness of what they are doing. Thank you that you secure us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. But help us 
to understand the grace of God that brings salvation more deeply, that we might deny worldliness and ungodliness and seek with a sense of zealous, zealous zeal to live holy and righteously in this age. I pray today for that person listening who is not saved, that today would be a turning point, that they would see that before you, they fall short of your glory, that they can never do anything to make it right. May they call upon Christ and put their faith where you put their sin on him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.